Hello, how are you? I'm very, very happy to be back with you for season six of the Just Bloody Post It podcast, a show for creatives who are marketing their work online. I'm your host, Helen Perry, and every week for the next 10 or so, we'll be joined by guests who are brilliantly sharing their thing to grow an online audience, get visible and make money. They'll share what they've learned about themselves, about what feels comfortable and what gets them fired up. This week, podcaster Karen Arthur, who needs to be seen to be fully appreciated. Society has done a number on women in terms of the rules of fashion. The rules of everything, actually. What am I talking about? But let's just stick to fashion, shall we? And, you know, there are so many rules. What you can't wear after 40, what you shouldn't wear with this, what to wear to flatter you, to flatter your body. What what, what is that? The different seasons, what's in trend, what's not in trend, what's going up, what's going down. It's absolute rollocks. It's rollocks. And it's made up by, you know... Often, probably old cis white men who own all these companies up at the top, you know, who are basically out to get your money. They want you to buy more stuff and they keep us fearful of not being relevant and young. Karen is the host of Menopause Whilst Black, which has been named one of the best midlife podcasts out there now. She's a former teacher whose career was derailed by the onset of the menopause, which sparked anxiety and depression. But her new career has emerged butterfly-like from that period. It's seen Karen become a spokesperson on the menopause in black women, but also a fashion creator, speaker, model and writer. She's featured in Vogue, The Telegraph and The Guardian and in campaigns for brands including Specsaver, and E45. Wow. I began by asking her in which of these many roles she feels most at home. I like speaking, like the sound of my own voice. No, I've got a lot to say, actually. And um, I am very much more comfortable than I thought I would ever be. Very comfortable on stage or in a position where I am talking to an audience about the stuff that lights me up, whether it's talking about menopause, whether it's talking about being 60, getting older, how incredible it is, what a privilege it is, whether it's talking about the links between fashion and mental well-being and where you're happy, or whether it's, you know, talking about the current education system. Fortunately, nobody's asked me about that because I have things to say. Uh, (laughs) So I, I, and I'm also um, leaning into the fact that I'm good at interviewing. I, I like, I like the, I love the conversations. I think I, I was a pastoral leader before I left teaching um, in the last, I don't know, 15 years of my post. And so I was very used to speaking to families and speaking to kids and facilitating workshops and things like that, and teaching. And, you know, um, getting up in front of 300 kids every week and, you know, talking and that kind of thing. So it, it, it kind of comes naturally, but also I've had a lot of practice at it. 
you know, when I started teaching and when I was younger, I felt that you could only speak if you had something factual to say. And so often in staff meetings, I didn't say anything, even though I was a vocal, loud person in staff meetings. I never said anything because I was intimidated by all those people with degrees and masters, even though I've got a degree. Um, And I have found that, first of all, no one knows what I'm talking about. Guys, that's a fact. But also story. Right. But when you are passionate about what you're speaking about, you can't say anything wrong. You know, I was worried about people going, oh, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Well, actually, I bloody do. (laughs) What I was wanting to say almost immediately, as soon as you started talking was, it really interests me that you found a talent in you that you didn't think was there late on. Like, I didn't think I was the person to speak to a auditorium full of people or to speak on the radio or to be asked to speak to a publication. But the stories we tell ourselves about what we can and can't do are very often not true, especially the way we talk to ourselves when we were younger, right? We make it up. We make the yeah. story up. And, and, we, we, and it keeps us small. And also society rewards women for giving to others and we are used to being small Um, and so when we step out of that and we really find how powerful we are first of all we're unstoppable but also we you know we spend a lot of time that's what the phrase imposter syndrome comes from isn't it you know do men have imposter syndrome I'm sure they do I don't know but certainly from the women I speak to you know um, there's a lot of stuff that keeps us away from the thing that we should be doing finding our purpose whatever you want to call it I mean nothing happens before it's time. I couldn't have done what I'm doing now 10 years ago 50, you know I needed all those experiences to get to now. But my goodness me I've got a fire up my bum. I'm not going anywhere any I'm not shutting up anytime. Now I found my voice it's all over for you bitches. <laughs> so where's the, there's a big gap between uh where this this part of your story starts having to give up the work that you loved because of symptoms brought on by the menopause and this firecracker woman with no intention of stopping that we're talking to now. How, how, did, how did you make the journey from one to the other? What happened? Um, slowly and painfully and in a difficult way. Um, so this is eight years ago. Uh, that I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression. And I was signed off work for the second time. I was, a, as I said, a, a pastoral leader, head of house in a large secondary, secondary modern, do we call them that? I don't know, that, uh, in London. And um, I had been teaching for 28 years, so it didn't occur to me that I shouldn't go back or that I wouldn't do anything else because I didn't know what else I would do. My my whole uh, worth, sense of worth was tied up in my job. And I was bloody good at it. Um, but it got to a point where it became untenable. And the other thing is, we mentioned menopause and anxiety and depression and mental well-being. There's a big link. But I didn't think that at the time because no one was talking about menopause, let alone menopause and poor mental well-being. So my focus was, I can't do my job. I'm forgetting things. I'm going mad. If I tell anybody, they'll give me the sack. 
Um, I need to keep this quiet. I need to get better in order to go back to work. And gradually, and my doctor didn't make the connection either. So although I was having hot flushes, my my primary focus was how am I going to keep my job so I can pay my mortgage and keep my kids in the style that they're accustomed to and all of that. And so I, it got to a point where it became untenable. And so I left and I thought, oh, well, I'll get better now, won't I? And the opposite happened. My, uh, some extenu, what's the word? Extenuating circumstances in that my aunt, uh, Monica passed away quite suddenly. No one was expecting her to go. And my one of my daughters came home early from uni. She wasn't particularly well at the time. And then, of course, I'm not. I haven't got a job. I'm fun employed, as I, I, you know, love to call it. And so I had, I had a lot of things doing. But I, I suppose when we're, when we're women, we do that thing where we might be ill. But then if we've got to take the kids to school, then we get out of bed and we take them to school and then we come home and we go to back to bed again. I mean, we've all, you know, it happens. And so I did a lot of that. So it wasn't until I, you know, buried my aunt and we kind of moved on and my daughter was getting better and things started to level out that I was, I really went into, I mean, proper went into my depression, embraced it. But I also knew that Now's the time to chuck everything at me. So I turned the gaze on myself for the first time ever in my, at the time, 52 years. Um, I went very, very quiet. I didn't want to see people. They made me anxious anyway. And I felt a sense of shame. I felt guilty that I dropped the kids in it, you know, as in the kids I used to teach. I felt um, shame that I couldn't do my job. I felt weak. Um... And so I, my background is in dance. I have a performing arts degree and I taught dance for 17 years, a bit longer. And so I deepened my stretch practice, if you like, and I learned to mindfully meditate. Um, I, I um, yeah, I learned to meditate and I went to a herbalist and everything I did was focused on how can I get better. I checked every, people say, well, what worked? Well, I did every bloody thing. I don't know. But it all worked. And then I knew I started to get better because I started to I started to wear my... Well, two things. I missed my aunt. I was grieving for my aunt. I felt guilty that I hadn't been a better niece. And I was floored by her um, passing and thought and then felt guilty for being floored because I hadn't seen her enough. Oh, so much in that. But I missed her and I kept a couple of her skirts when I was um, clearing out, having her flat cleared out. And I would wear them when I felt I wanted to be closer to her. And they also gave me courage to leave the house. And then I started to be more conscious about what I put on my body. And I would say, what's going to get me out of the house? What, what, what brings me joy? What do I love? Often it was colour. Colourful clothing, clearly. Uh, but um, it wasn't always that. Sometimes it was clothing from hot holidays, layered. Uh, sometimes it's a lot of... I'm, obviously, I made a lot of... Not obviously. I was a fashion designer. I made a lot of my own clothes. Um, sometimes it was my Aunt Monica's clothing, as I said, her jewellery, something somebody had given to me. Stuff that held memories. 
And then I started to talk about it on their Twitter and hashtagged it uh, where you're happy. And and it worked. I couldn't... It's like the Emperor's New Clothes. I couldn't understand. It was so simple. Why wasn't everybody doing it? Why was everybody fast fashioning? You know, I, I couldn't get it. How can clothes help to heal you? Talk to to somebody who doesn't have that relationship with what they wear and perhaps could have, perhaps could have. How does something that a lot of people would say is, you know, frivolous or, you know, not meaningful really in your life, you talk about it with such a lot of meaning. Mm. Because, Ex- because Go deeper, explain. It does have meaning. It, it, we have... <sighs> First of all, I feel like everybody should have therapy. But there are also ways that we can, free, let's be very clear, free therapy. Um, But there are also ways that we can aid positive mental well-being and help the way that we show up every day. And we often have those things in our wardrobe. Society has done a number on women in terms of the rules of fashion. The rules of everything, actually. What am I talking about? But let's just stick to fashion, shall we? And, you know, there are so many rules. What you can't wear after 40, what you shouldn't wear with this, what to wear to flatter you, to flatter your body. What what, what is that? You know, um, the different seasons, what's in trend, what's not in trend, what's going up, what's going down. It's absolute rollocks. It's rollocks. And all all they've done, and it's made up by, you know, often probably old cis white men who own all these companies up at the top, you know, who are basically out to get your money. They want you to buy more stuff and they keep us fearful of not being relevant and young. And that's another story. I won't do that right now. Um, and, and, and so we wear things based on outward, the outward gaze, often the male gaze. We wear things to please other people rather than really thinking about, well, do I like this? But the other thing is, is that as we get older, our bodies change. We're not as comfortable in the same clothes that we used to wear. And subliminally, all that messaging has said, you can't wear that. You're a mother, you can't wear that. You know, or explicitly, I've had people say to me, you can't, you can't wear that. You've got two kids. And for what? Why? What? What? You know. Watch me. (laughs) I know. Yeah. And so, but the other side to this is, We have clothing in our wardrobes that we're keeping for best. We're waiting for someone to take us out. We're keeping it, we've heard of the term Sunday best. We we want a special occasion. Listen, let me tell you now. We survived three years of a global pandemic that is kind of not going away. We know people who didn't make it. Surely today is a day to celebrate. Surely today is Sunday best. Wear stuff you love. You don't know whether you're going to be around tomorrow to wear those shoes or to put that hat on, you know. And so I I feel, as you can hear, very passionately about being able to, what is it, you know, shed the weight of other people's expectations. But also look in your wardrobe. Get rid of the stuff that you really don't like, that has bad memories, that doesn't fit you, that makes you feel like shite you know, and keep the stuff 
or add the stuff that makes you feel good. And that will be decent lingerie that fits you properly, guys. Chuck those grey and knickers out. What for? If the first thing you put on your skin is something that feel, makes you feel rubbish, why are you putting it on? I don't understand. If you only need, you know, three pairs of knickers, a wet one, a dry one, a one that's in the wash. <laughs> you know, I was going to say seven, but you don't need that many. Clothing that, if you love going on holiday, who doesn't? Then you will have clothing that you only wear on holiday. Why is this? You know, uh, and and we do that thing where we can only wear summer clothes in the summer. No, you can't because there's things called tights and polar neck jumpers and layers and think, you know, we, there are ways that we can wear all our clothing at once if we want to. But I think the first thing to do is to look at your wardrobe and go, yeah, I, I don't wear that. I haven't worn it for ages. Most of us only wear the clothes, depending on whether we're right-handed or left-handed, like 30% of our clothes or something, there's some statistic, and that it'll be the ones that are, if you're right-handed, on the right-hand side of your wardrobe. Have a look. Oh my God, do, I've do never even own, thought of it that way. You do looked, your own you research. Look to the right. Wow. Yeah, because you, you do that, or they're in the middle or slightly to the right. And for Everything people listening... It's buried. And for people listening who don't have the pleasure of seeing you in front of them and they will go and have a look at your Instagram and whatnot. How would we know that it's you coming towards us? Describe your style. <laughs> have I got a style? It's out there, isn't it? I have no intention of becoming invisible. Society wants older women. Once we've passed our sell-by date, we can't have kids and we don't look sexy. Sexy. Um, to go quietly... <laughs> I'm not that woman and I encourage uh, any woman but particularly as you get older and you know menopausal and lumpy and all the rest of it um, so my style is usually colourful I rarely wear black and if I do wear black it's going to have some kind of colour pop I'm going to have big earrings on if you've seen my incredible coat uh, quilted coat of wonder uh, that is um, pinned to the top of my Instagram. That And that is, I mean, people can't ignore me because it's so bloody huge. But it's my ode to taking up space as an older woman. I am older. I have more experience. I have much more to say. I have much more wisdom. Why am I going to keep that to myself? And I urge women, especially older women who are feeling irrelevant because society is trying to push you to one side. I urge you to do the same. And one way to do that is the way in which you dress. And it takes confidence. I'm not, you know, I'm not, um, I don't undermine that confidence, but my confidence has, I can't think of a succinct sentence, but basically it's gotten more. <laughs> I, that's exactly what I was going to say. I would say confidence builds surprisingly quickly once you start doing things and you start realising that you can and there is no consequence other than positive consequences. Um, I want to get into the sharing aspect of what you do. You mentioned that you started to share, you started to speak, you started to use your voice on Twitter. How did that gather momentum? <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because for a long time it didn't. That's really good to know. Every, everybody's like, yeah, I arrived. I had something to say and everybody sat up and started listening straight Not away. Not at all. Far from it. 
I, <laughs> I talked to myself. I posted pictures. I hashtagged where you're happy. Every now and then someone said, oh, that's, you look lovely or whatever. But on the whole, because I felt so, this is the thing. If you stick to what you love, if you're talking about what you're passionate about, people, after a while, people can't ignore you. They, they just, because... And it does, and also it doesn't matter if I'd if I'd have gone on Twitter going right, I want to gain this many followers, and I want to sell them this amount of things, and I want to get in the press, and I want to get on TV. If I'd have done that, well, first of all, I've been an, a very unhappy Karen for a very long time, but I just was filled with this need to share to anybody who'd bloody listen that this shit works. It works. We have it in us. Um, and so it didn't gather momentum for a very long time. Then Instagram came along. And after I'd gotten over posting my lunch and running away, you know, and getting excited about over four likes. Actually, it's the perfect medium for, for, for artists, for creatives, you know, for people who... And, and, and so it became easier to share. But the other side to that is I... When I left teaching, I, I had to, I didn't want to go, I decided to curate the next 30, 40, 50 years of my life doing the stuff that I love. So I made a conscious decision not to do anything I don't love, um, which means I was skint for a long time. Let me just put my hand up. And I was living off my savings. So I've always been a very good saver and hallelujah, praise the Lord. It came in very handy there. Um, and so I, 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 wanted to work with women. I wanted to make clothes. I loved the idea of making indi having individual conversations because for me, it's the conversations that fabric brings us together as opposed to the finished item. Once I've worked out how to make the thing, it's kind of over. Um, and then I pass it on. But the conversations you have with women who are basically trusting you to make something for them that's going to be beautiful and make them feel amazing. But also, you have to ask them about what they love about their body. Women don't love, we don't love our bodies, babes. We don't. And we're more likely to be able to reel off a list of stuff we don't love, you know. And so it was a, it was kind of half therapy with an unqualified therapist, obviously. But, you know... And was, oh, we take our therapy yeah. where we can get it, though, yeah. don't we? Uh, yeah. That's what I think. I just think you take it from all different yeah. kinds of places. So did your Instagram start out as a place to sell your services, to sell clothes and textiles? Yeah, I, I had a business. I was making right. bags and then I was making, uh, uh, yeah, and then I started to make clothing, but just putting it on my website and hoping someone would buy it. When I moved into Bespoke, it was a way to showcase what I was making. But I have to put my hands up. My first uh, Bespoke uh, client was a friend, a, a work colleague. My second Bespoke client was five months later. Uh, so I would showcase what I, what, what I was wearing, what I had made in the past, inspiration. I did all of that. And it is, it's a kind of faking it as you're making it, except I wasn't really faking it because it was still on You're kind of learn, you're learning, and aren't I, yeah. you? You're, you're just, you're putting it out there. You're finding out whether it's the right fit for you. You're finding out whether anybody else is interested. It's like, it's, it's certainly in the early days of Instagram where people didn't have as high expectations of what they were going to get back from Instagram. It was certainly much easier to just... Yeah 
Yeah. Post. Yeah, it was easier. It's much harder now, but I will say now I'm much more, I I mean, I love Instagram, but I also don't love it. And I don't get so wound up about when, you know, engagement and it's because it's not life. It's just not life. It's not real. And it, and it's just, <laughs> no pun intended, oh! <laughs> you know, and it, but it, it's not, it's not my be all and end all, you know. Um. No, I, I think I've changed my, my feelings about Instagram have really matured. I'm going to use the word matured over the last year because I think it's a much more grown up attitude to have. Yeah, and we are definitely certainly grown ups. Yes, that's, and we are grown up, aren't we? Uh, but also, I will say, meeting you, meeting you, and your hashtag, just bloody post it. I hear you in my head going, just bloody post it, and I, that has been the inspiration behind quite a few of my posts. Listen, yesterday, I spent five attempts trying to upload a video. That still, I tried again today, and I let that, and I will. I'm, I'm deliberately saying this. I allowed that to affect my mood, and then I thought to, this morning I got up and I was like, well, obviously it's not meant to be shared. I'll just do something else, or I won't do anything at all, or I'll go out in the sunshine, or I'll go for a run. Do you know what I mean? Whereas in the past, oh my God, oh woe is me. The world can't see my amazing work. You know, it's just calm down. Take, here's where I'm at. Take where, take what you can take from that app. Take the great contacts and the people. And if you really, if you're feeling creative and it feels right and good to share what you want to share on there, do it in the way that you see fit. It kind of expect nothing and don't let it hurt you. That's how I feel about it. Because people do let it hurt them. And that's, it's just you can't let it have that power how then did you how then did the the podcast come about it came out of tragedy 2020 um so I couldn't I didn't have any bespoke clients because lockdown covid and I was in my kitchen making masks at a feverish pace um which actually saved my business for a while and um, we were all a captive audience, weren't we? The world was a captive audience. And two things happened. Amy Cooper called the police on Christian Cooper um, in Central Park. Um, and then less than two days later, maybe a day later, George Floyd was murdered. And the world seemed to wake up to what black folks knew that, you know, white supremacy is a thing. And it was awful. And I felt, and awful is an understatement. I felt, how did I feel? Rage. Rage I didn't know what to do with. No one to talk to. No one to shout at. No one listening. And yet everybody was watching. That video was everywhere. I was trying really hard to avoid it. I would have nightmares where that image flashed in my brain. And I was aware that I'd done a lot of research, my own research around my own menopause, and I was aware that black women are likely to start our menopause journey 8.5 months earlier and up to two years earlier than our white counterparts, and also that we are likely to suffer for longer. And I know that stress can exacerbate the onset of menopause, and I know that racism is a form of stress. So I'm putting two and two together. 
And I'm, I wanted to connect as well. I couldn't understand. I wanted to know how black menopausal women were coping, how women who looked like me were coping with things like hot flushes, for example. And I, I Googled menopause a few years ago, and I'd Googled, you Googled menopause at the time, and if you clicked images, a sea of white faces came up with a specific look. They look, I mean, you know, head in hands, white hair, grey hair, wearing beige, looking very sad. Everybody looked sad. Everybody who was menopausal, supposed to be menopausal, uh, looked sad. And I thought, where are the people who look like me? So I went back on Instagram and I recorded a video and I started the sentence with, if you Google menopause and you click images, what do you see? And everybody did it and they got it. And then I started to talk about injustices and George Floyd and all the stuff. Then I, I, I suppose one thing led to another. I, I, I knew that there was no research that specific, there was one piece of interest research that had asked black women about menopause and it contained 22 BME women and it was by Northamptonshire Medical Trust someone like that and they wanted to know why black women were less like BME women were less likely to take up hormone replacement therapy than white women that was it 22 I couldn't understand how that counted as research and that was in 2007 so I did my own and I put it in a Google sheet thing, whatever you call it, and uh, 400 women, black women, British women, answered. And what came out of that was lots of things that we know that, you know, no one talked about menopause and you didn't talk about it with your mother and um, lots of people didn't know what the symptoms are or how many symptoms there were. And there, there were 34, there are more and more now but also that they wanted more information and they wanted some kind of information sharing. There was one podcast at the time called Black Girl's Guide to Surviving Menopause and it's run by Omashadi, Bernie Scott, and it's American. And we're good friends now. And she had been going for a year, but it had a very American perspective. But it was black women talking about menopause. Where were the black British women speaking? So I bought a microphone and then I looked at it for four months and I didn't do anything. And then I wrote, because uh, I thought someone else will do it, you know, or someone else will have done it. I just didn't look hard enough. And then um, our good friend, Nat Lou, said something like, done is better than perfect. You know, no, no one is born an expert. All of the stuff that you need to say. I happen to know quite a few women in my circles who also do podcasts. And I emailed 10, I identified 10 black British women and Omi, because I wanted to interview her as well. And I sent them an email asking them if they could possibly, if they didn't mind, if they had time, you know, sorry, 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 uh, be on my podcast. And every bloody one said yes. <laughs> so then I was like, oh, I've watched a lot of videos and then I just did it. And now we're four seasons in and it's been named in The Guardian as one of the five best midlife podcasts. And it's incredible. And I know, and you know what I've learned from that? I've learned how good I am at it and I didn't know and I wouldn't have known, you know, because I was scared shitless that I was going to sh get shot down in flames, that people are going to laugh at me, that no one would listen. But it was, it's, here we are, you know.
And was the impact of those conversations evident immediately from the, the people who were listening to the podcast? Was the feedback, the feedback has, immediate or did it or take a while to grow? I think it, I think both. Um, I think that the impact was immediate um, in that people would contact me and go, black women would contact me and go, oh my God, oh my God, where have you been all my life? But I still get that two, two and a half years on. Um, I, it's just me. I now have an editor because I, I, you know, I got through one and a half seasons and I was like, no, there's more to life than this. And I didn't want to not do it. I didn't want to drain the fun out of it. And like I said, I'm only doing stuff I love. So now I have an editor and she gets me the lovely Erin at Beyongolia Productions and she gets me. And so she will do all the stuff that I can't either don't have time or don't have the wherewithal or can't be asked to do. Um, and it's a beautiful thing. And I think that I, I, I struggled for a bit around the whole, why isn't anybody sponsoring me? You know, and people would start a podcast. Why wouldn't we start a podcast? And three weeks later, they'd have a bloody sponsor. I'm like, where, oh, what am I, Billy No Mates? But actually now... I, first of all, they'd have to be a very, um, they'd have to align with my values. And also, I don't like being told what to do. I know, I think there's a lot to be said for being in control of your own thing. I mean, it'd be nice to have it all paid for or even, God, heaven forbid, make some money out of it. However, I think sponsors often want yeah. a lot, yeah. a lot back yeah. from their money. Um, so, yeah, and like you say, just keep being yeah. your own boss. Is it the fact that you are a spokesperson for this specific issue, Karen, that has led to all the other kind of like sexy opportunities, sexy opportunities. The, the cam the campaigns, the big speaking gigs. That is that has that come directly out of you being the expert on menopause. Do you know what? Back? I think the opportunities have come because I've been open to them. Because I made a conscious decision to let go of my fear of never making money ever again. When I left teaching, I went into supply teaching, which is soul-destroying. Uh, but I, And it doesn't pay that much. And I hated it, but it was a comfort zone. I guess it was my way of easing myself away from the classroom. I still miss schools and kids. Kids are fucking hilarious. They're amazing. They see through all your bullshit. I love them. But the education system, meh, not so much. So I, I did that for a couple of years. And then one day I just had an epiphany and it was, yeah, I'm not doing this. I don't like it. And the day, the uni I believe, this is my belief, that the universe has a way of testing you. When you make a decision, it goes, okay, let me just see if you're, you're telling the truth. And the day I, no word of a lie, the day I decided not to do it anymore and to say no, I had four phone calls from agencies asking me to work. And I kept saying, I was look at one point I looked up at the sky and I was like, you think you're funny, isn't it? <laughs> you got jokes. Um, what, have you, what have been some of your favourite gigs? What, all, of all the stuff I've done? Oh my God. I yeah. like everything. I like stuff I do. I love having my makeup done and my hair. What are you crazy? Oh, I would love. I'm so rubbish at makeup. I would love to. I'd love to have someone do a face. I did some work. I did some stuff called menopause monologues for Boots, 
which was huge, where they basically had an evening where um, five of us, five of us, four of us, got up on stage and talked about our menopause um, journey. And it was incredible and it had a massive reach. I loved that. I love Specsavers because I said the Specsavers ad, I didn't know it was going to be me. I I mean, I, somebody asked me to go for a casting. Somebody messaged me on Instagram, a casting agent, and said, oh, do you want to go for casting? And I honestly thought, oh, I've never been to one of those before. I'll do that. So I went to that, some place in Soho. You know, it took, what, half an hour and then went home. Didn't think much of it. And then um, they asked me to go for the advert. And again, you get paid for the day, but you don't know what it is that you're doing. So I went along and I did that. And, well, that was fun. Had my makeup done. And then the funny thing about that is I had one and a bit months left of mortgage in my bank account. It was Christmas 2019. And... I was like, oh, okay. I'm trying not to think about it because I'm trying to not come from a place of scarcity and I'm working hard and it's Christmas. And then I got a phone call, possibly on the 23rd of December, saying, send us your details, invoice us for this amount. And then t- January 2020, the spec save, I ended up in everybody's blinking letterboxes as the spec savers lady on TV, smiling on billboards. And whilst it wasn't a huge, in retrospect, it wasn't a huge amount of money, it saved me at that point. And it put me on the lips and on in the eyes and the inboxes of other people who would see me. Um, six months later, what happened? Um, Statues Regest contacted me, which was a Sky Arts documentary asking me to dress uh, Queen Victoria. And that had a load of publicity. The Sex, Myths and the Menopause. Um, come at, running out of words. Documentary dropped with Davina McCall. And that was, you know, she swanned around in my lovely quilt of wonder. So uh, one thing leads to another. And at some point, my confidence started to grow. And I started to actively remember who the fuck I am. And also that... All my worry about scarcity was based on stories that I'd made up in my head because there is no evidence that Karen Arthur will ever not land on her feet. What would you say to somebody who is listening who is like, wow, Karen's amazing, but she's different to me somehow. She has a character that invites these kind of opportunities and I will have to, I will stay in my lane and Karen is different. What would you say to that person who might have things they want to say or ask for for themselves? Oh, that's such a good question. No one's ever asked me that question before. That's really good. Um, yeah, but I would say we're all different. That's what I would say. And I would say that we spend a lot of time trying to work out, mm, trying to run away from what we really want to do because of pressures around paying for things and capitalism. And we think that we do that. We look at other people and think, oh, I couldn't do that. Well, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to do something else. Somebody said something to me, or I read it somewhere, that there are people out there with twice your confidence and half your talent doing the thing that you could be doing. i tell you what gives me peace. What gives me peace is that when 
brands or when people approach me to do things and they are making demands of me that I'm not comfortable with, I can walk away because I walk away because you don't align with my values. Therefore, that's not for me. I don't do, oh my God, I must grab that because it's paying this amount of money. I literally go, okay, we're good. I I am able to say no because it's not my journey. So I, what I would say to those people is, your journey is your journey. And someone needs to hear your voice. Someone needs to have your product. Someone needs to wear whatever it is or, or hang up whatever it is you're making. Someone needs you. But be patient. Be patient. Because listen, I talked to myself for years years because I felt that it was for me because I felt that that's what I needed to say and now people are getting it and now people are waking up I also do a lot of journaling I write down I read that book um mm, you're a badass at making money and I did all the prompts and it felt a little bit weird and nutty um but they she asked you I can't remember her name Jen Sincero she asked you to do things like envisage where you're living in you know five years ten years time or write down your ideal day or your studio every single thing I've ever written down in retrospect I realize um has happened whether it's choose I wanted to be I will I said something like I will be when people think about menopause in the UK they'll think of me and it's happened. And that's that was like five years, four years ago. That's crazy when you think about it. I envisage living by the sea. I live in St. Leonard's. I live in Hastings. I envisage being near the sea. I envisaged having a beautiful studio, which I had. And I will have an... Do you see? It's when you recognise... I feel that once I... Rec- when, when, when people recognise that your path is your path... And if you have your values on lockdown and you don't veer too far away from them, that actually everything that happens to you is supposed to happen to you and your time will come. So, yes, I am different, but so are you. And you said you're not done, like you're a long way from done. What's what's next? What do you hope, I suppose, for the, the next few years? Or are you, do you just go with what comes up? How intentional. I do go with what yeah. comes up. I do go with what comes up. Full disclosure, I have a manager who does all of the lovely Juanita. And I got a manager. It happened organically, but also I I was fed up of the in, of not being able to negotiate my worth. And it made me anxious to the point where I wasn't looking at my emails and wasn't answering my emails or local. Is this because you you felt it would be easier for a third person to do that on your behalf? Yeah. yeah. And also, I'm a big believer in paying people to do things that you don't want to do. So am and, I. And, because it, it frees me. Yeah. Right. So my the biggest thing before that was... Um, I pay an accountant to do my tax return because I'm not losing any more sleep over tax returns. And people say, oh, it's easy. No, it fucking isn't. I'm sorry it isn't. And I'm not doing it. So I'm not. You know, so I'm that person. And I'm very more than happy with that. And with, you know, the way that my life has worked out. So I kind of go with the flow, but she keeps me in check because every now and then she go, right, so let's look at your plan for the next quarter. (laughs) 
the whole quarter. <laughs> but, the, but the other side to that is I stick to what I love. If I don't, if it's difficult, if there are too many twists and turns or I'm being asked to do things that fundamentally don't align with what I want to do, or if I just don't feel, it doesn't settle with me, I walk away. I don't do it. Because when we don't do the stuff that we don't want to do, it leaves space for the stuff we love. It's about patience. And often when we're just ready to give up, don't don't give up. Because round the corner is what you need. Perfect way to end the conversation. Karen, absolutely loved chatting to you. And I know that people are going to love listening. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. I'm so happy to have been able to bring you such an inspiring and energising conversation to kickstart the new series. Message me wherever you like to tell me which bit resonated most with you. It left me thinking about the joy of clothes. When we allow ourselves to find them joyful rather than being disappointed with our bodies and ageing, I have a lot to say about that in future thank you for listening. When I was planning to get back into the show for this season, I thought, do I need to change the format or make the beginning or the end different? But I thought, we don't, do we always have to keep changing things all the time? There's so much comfort in hearing something that follows the same rhythm it's always had. I think, I hope you agree. Lots of love. If you've enjoyed the show, please share it with others on social media because that's how new listeners find us. We'll be back soon. Bye.